Thanks for listening to the Art Tactic Podcast. I'm Adam Green. I think there's really two interesting mediums involving new technologies that are just being explored by artists, artificial intelligence and virtual reality. Artists are leveraging these technologies to create some really fascinating art. If you haven't been exposed to it yet, I think you will in the next few years. I envision artists beginning to use these mediums much more frequently. In this week's episode, we chat with Edward Claris. He's the managing partner at Claris Law. We talk to him about artificial intelligence and virtual reality art and some of the legal aspects surrounding these two mediums. We chat with Ed about what is artificial intelligence art exactly? How does it work? There's an algorithm involved in the process. He breaks it all down for us. He really simplifies it. If you've heard the term artificial intelligence art, you're not really sure what it means. Ed really clearly explains it to us. Then we also talk about some of the legal questions that arise from artists leveraging artificial intelligence and machine learning to create art. We also talk to him about virtual reality art, what that is exactly, how that's different than artificial intelligence art. And we also discuss some of the notable examples of virtual reality art and what the business model is for something like virtual reality art, as well as some of the legal components of that. So it's a really insightful conversation we have with Ed. He educated me on a lot of these areas, and I think you'll really find it interesting. So thanks so much. Ed, we appreciate you coming on. Happy to be here, Adam. Thanks for having me. Why don't we start with artificial intelligence art? I think it's an esoteric concept or form of art, but I know that it's been in the news lately. Uh, there's been a buzz about artificial intelligence art. So maybe our, some of our listeners are familiar with the term, but tell us exactly how artificial intelligence art works, how it's created, how machine learning algorithms are incorporated into that process. You're right. It is a really new area, uh, but fascinating. And there's a lot of people working in the space. Uh, in terms of artificial intelligence and art, it could mean music or script writing or, or uh, other forms. But what I think we'll focus on here is the creation of what is normally known as fine art. Um, and, and it's a really good way into the topic and it, and it can be extrapolated to the other areas, but that sounds like it would be most appropriate here. Um, so what does artificial intelligence mean? It's one of those very strange terms. It, it might mean robotics, it might mean image recognition, but here in the uh, creation of fine art, it's really about machine learning. So machine learning in, in a lot of ways equals artificial intelligence. And what does machine learning mean? It means that you, you start with an algorithm and most people these days are using what's called a GAN or a generative adversarial network. Um, and what that does is it discriminates the real from the fake. Uh, so you have to start with the real. You have to feed real art images of real art into the algorithm. And that let's take um, a, an artist like Jeff Koons. Um, you might take all of his paintings and, and you know, fine art and feed them into your, um, your computer. And that means scanning them and then having them resolve into digits. And say you've got a thousand images. Now you're, what, you, what you want your, your machine to do is to learn those images and to produce something that is different but influenced by. 
And so your machine needs to read them, create something new, and then the, the adversarial component of the GAN is that it looks to see what's real and what's not, and it determines whether the, the image that, that it's looking at is one or the other. If, if it says that a fake image is actually real, if it's, if it's fooled, then you've succeeded and you've created this new piece of work. Um, that's a very, very, and then if it fails, it sends it back and the, and the machine continues to try to learn what's real and what's fake, discriminate. And once the discriminator uh, kind of lets through enough fakes as real, then you know the machine has learned close enough to um, figure out really how to mimic the original artist. So therein comes the law. Um, what happens when you're training your machine with somebody else's copyrighted work? Uh, copyrighted work means that you, that the artist has the right to protect against other people making copies without his or her authority. In the case that I just gave where Jeff Koons' works are scanned, the presumption is that Jeff Koons is not in favor or authorized the scanning of his works into somebody else's machine. So can uh, a new artist scan in old, uh, uh, another living artist's work that is in copyright? And in, in copyright means anything that's been created since 1923 and to the present. Um, <clears throat> can can that new artist take all those works and scan them? That's a copyright infringement sort of prima facie, but then there's the question whether it's a fair use, whether the utilization of those images just for machine learning and not for exploitation specifically is a copyright infringement that, that can lead to damages. The matter hasn't really been decided um, by a court exactly. There have been some analogous cases around or, for the most prominent one is Google Books, um, where Google was scanning in millions of in-copyright books to, to be able to help people find them online through a Google search. And the court said, well, a Google search is really different than reading a book. Uh, the fact that they scanned the entire book didn't matter. It was really what, what people saw on the other side. And that was not the whole book. And it was for a completely transformative use. Therefore, it was a fair use. Um, in this case, it might be the same. You, it may be that feeding in the entire work, which is never ultimately seen by the public, but is only used for an algorithm to learn from it, is considered fair, or it could be considered not fair, um, not fair use. Why? Because the second artist is trying to trick a machine into thinking that the second artist's work is actually just like the first artist's work, and is that really something that we want to promote? Um, so. Unclear, but a lot of artists are using data like I've just described as training sets for their machine learning. That's a very quick wrap up of the way it works. Yeah, it's really interesting. And it seems like there's a lot of ambiguity in terms of the legality of some of these practices. To what extent at this moment are we actually seeing artists scanning other artists' works into a machine learning technology? Or at this juncture, is this just more theoretical right now and really a discussion about how we should handle these cases when they do arise in the future? Oh, it's definitely happening, Adam. There's a couple of really serious artists who are creating immense training sets 
i.e. they're scraping images off of the web at huge rates and or are being provided with access to big data data sets and they're uh, in the business of creating artificial intelligence generated work um, and selling it. So for example, uh, Robbie Barrett, um, who's a 19 year old, uh, really smart young artist um, has created works from his training sets as I've described and sold them for um, a lot of money. Um, and Mario Klingemann, um, who's a German artist, is also doing the same, and he's been really widely and very highly received. Um, so those two in particular, I've got other clients um, who I can't really talk about, but who are, I just had a phone call this week around um, uh, clients that wanted to talk through uh, creating training sets um, from massive scraping off the web or from uh, Creative Commons licenses, uh, websites where Creative Commons rights are provided, but they didn't know whether this sort of use was covered by the Creative Commons license. So there's a bunch of ways that artists are trying to get these big training sets to be scanned in and, and utilized, and they're using them in order to create fascinating, beautiful work. So if you go online and look at Mario Klingemann, for example, you'll see that his work is, is, is beautiful. It's different. And it looks like a computer in many ways, but it also has the markings of a human being because he is behind each work that he ultimately releases to the public. Hearing all this, I immediately start thinking just about how the contemporary art market works. Imagine you have artist A, a very in-demand artist. They have an upcoming gallery exhibition. Maybe there's only 10 paintings. There are three, 400 people on the waiting list for these works. The gallery can be very selective in who they sell the work to. They're going to place it only with collectors who either have very strong museum affiliations, maybe to collectors who are going to buy one for their own collection and donate one to a museum simultaneously. And that's why you see, because of that demand, you see, and the difficulty in access to, to works by certain artists, you see that pricing discrepancy between the primary and secondary market. Okay, so that's artist A. Now imagine artist B comes along and develops some kind of machine learning technology and feeds into this technology images of works only by artist A. So the machine learning starts to learn how to make original artworks that are very reminiscent, very similar to artist A's work, but artist B is able to make them in high volume. They can sell them for a tenth of the price that the gallery charges for artist A. Everyone who's on that waiting list can suddenly get an original artwork that looks very similar to artist A, but it's made by artist B. I just think something like this could be incredib incredibly disruptive to the contemporary art ecosystem and just how the art market works. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, it, it raises, again, more copyright issues. And there's other ones that I wanted to talk about. But the one that I already did was whether it's a fair use to uh, scan in lots of people's work. The second one that you're describing is whether the artificial intelligence uh, software or the artist in conjunction with, with his or her software creates a work that's what we call in copyright substantially similar to the original. If it's substantially similar or an exact copy, then there's no question that it's, a, it's an infringement of copyright. And if that artist, the second artist comes along and just sort of um, tries to sell something that looks exactly like the prior artist, then, then he or she is engaging in copyright infringement in the original and the real artist 
can sue and get damages. That, that feels uncontroversial. Um, and it feels like it'll happen perhaps, but the, there are already really good mechanisms to make copies. Um, so that's not really what these artists are looking for. They're not looking to pass off. What they're looking to do is to create algorithms and to work with almost like as in a partnership with an algorithm to create new work. Um, and they're fascinated by what computers can do on their own, but they're also really interested in working with the computer to decide and discern uh, what they want to make public to an audience. So there is this two, there are two types of, of uh, works that can come out of an algorithm or a GAN. Um, one is a, a work that's very curated, very, you know, touched up by the artist. So the, the machine produces a lot of different potential variations and the artist comes in and, and, and touches with it. So in that case, it's clear that the artist is the artist, right? The, any, any number of artists out there have um, machines that facilitate their output. Take, you know, a camera. A, a, a camera was as early as 1884 accepted by the Supreme Court as a machine that could be used by an artist and yet still the work that came out of the machine would be copyright the artist. Uh, the machine was merely a tool. That, the same is the case if you look at Photoshop or you look at Microsoft Word. I mean, all artists are facilitated by machines. Um, so that's non-controversial and the output of a one-off is definitely copyright. What happens, however, when the machine is producing the work completely on its own? where yes, the artist might have fed in a huge training set of a million images, um, but the output is not curated, is not touched up. So the artist is just um, allowing the machine to produce and, and make it available to people. So for example, um, there was one exhibit that Robbie Barrett did, and I'm not making any judgment on whether this is his work particularly is copyrightable, but it was a really fascinating experiment where the machine was outputting could output up to a million different images from its training set. And, and people who came to visit his, his um, gallery were able to look inside this black box by themselves, one person at a time, could look inside and see the work that, it, that the machine produced for that 10 seconds. And the machine would produce a work of art for 10 seconds. And then after that 10 seconds, the work of art would disappear and go away forever. So the, the art, was the fact that each visitor of his gallery would see his or her own art and nobody else in the world would ever see it and and it would go away forever but that was the art that he was creating so was each output a copyright infringement because it had used um the work of other people and and or was the work copyrightable at all um, there is that work that lasts for 10 seconds of a work, or is the conglomeration of all those images together a work? And would the Copyright Act accept that those are works? Really hard question because no human being was part of the creation. Um, and that has become whether a human being is part of the creation of the work or a human being or, or a person under the law. So a corporation can also be a, a person, but let's just call it a human being. Um, 
The U.S. Copyright um, Office down in D.C. has issued uh, pretty clear guidance that you have to have a human being as part of the creation in order for there to be copyright protection. And so, for example, there was this case, uh, the monkey selfie case, which some people read about, where a monkey picked up a camera, took a photograph of itself. It was a great shot of the monkey, which looked like it was smiling. Um, and the photographer, the guy who owned the camera, claimed copyright. And PETA sued him and said, no, you didn't take this picture. This monkey pushed the button, and therefore the monkey owns the picture. And the court said, no, no, no. You can't have a monkey owning copyright. Only human beings or only people can own copyright. And so that is about as close as it gets when you analogize that to um, not a monkey pushing the button, but uh, an algorithm itself creating the output, uh, you can't help but to think that there has to be human component to it. And the, and the Copyright Office says this because the, the copyright was part of the U.S. Constitution, and the Constitution says that they're creating copyright because of wanting to create an incentive to promote the arts and sciences. Um, and what, what incentive to promote art and science do you need to provide to a machine? A machine doesn't need an incentive. A machine just generates, and it could generate millions and millions and millions of, of works. Do we really wanna have that many new works in the world? And does it really matter to give a copyright which lasts for a hundred years uh, to a machine or to anybody? Um, the answer is probably no. However, it's a topic that's really controversial around the world. Um, the, some countries like the UK do protect works that are purely machine generated and other countries like Australia do not. Um, in Japan and in the European Union, there's very serious conversation going on around whether to protect machine generated works as copyright. And so the U.S. is not participating in those conversations. And I think that given that the U.K. already does protect machine-generated works and that Japan and the EU are seriously debating this topic, that I think probably the U.S. should get in on that conversation because this is going to be a fascinating uh, turn of events as things develop in, in artificial intelligence and art going forward. Yeah, I think you've raised a lot of interesting issues, and we'll certainly be tracking these to see how they play out as artificial intelligence art becomes more prevalent in the contemporary art space. You're also an expert on virtual reality art. Again, it'd be great if you could kind of break down what virtual reality art really is and maybe share with us some prominent examples of that kind of art. Sure. Uh, virtual reality is a fascinating medium because it combines you know, 3D, video, audio, uh, you can put yourself into a virtual space by wearing the, the, the goggles and feeling like you are there. So what I think of as virtual reality art is there's two different ways to think about virtual reality art. One is that you put on the goggles and you are as if you're standing in a museum. You, don't, you can be in your house, but you're standing in a museum and you can potentially transport yourself to one painting or another uh, where it comes up on your screen and you can see it, you can look around it, 
you can look at the description, you can hear a description of the art, and you are virtually in a museum. Uh, and, and the Kremer collection, for example, uh, put together a wonderful exhibit uh, that I recently saw where it really does feel like it democratizes uh, a gallery or a museum where you can be far away and yet still see the images that another a museum far away has the collection of. And, and, and it feels really um, authentic. That's a virtual reality experience that is not specific to uh, the, the virtual reality experience is not the art itself. It's the art that you see inside the experience. And th that raises some copyright issues, right? So uh, an artist sells a painting to uh, a museum, doesn't necessarily sell the copyright. So the, the, can the museum make an, a, a photograph of that art and make it available virtually without getting the permission of the artist? I would say no, you can't, right? Because the artist reserved the copyright, the museum just got the physical property. And uh, therefore, artists have to participate. There may be others, maybe some who think otherwise, they think it's a fair use to use the copies of the images in a virtual reality uh, exhibit. But I'm one who believes that that's not really something that you should do without the artist's permission. Now, um, there's a second type of virtual reality art, which is the entire experience. Now, uh, for example, LACMA uh, last year put on an exhibit where um, it was, a, you put on the goggles one, one person at a time, and it was as though you were in, uh, you were a, an immigrant on one side of the border of Mexico, and uh, you were trying to get over to the other side. And, uh, and, and what it felt like was you're actually the immigrant. You feel the fear, you see the guards, you see the fences, um, it feels scary. And so that, is what I would consider virtual reality art, where the experience that you're feeling is the thing that the artist is going for, and the artist wants to put you someplace and have you have that. Now, that is just totally legit art. The copyright in that work is owned by the artist. Um, the museum has gotten the work from the artist and the artist has author authorized all these people to look at the art. And it's a wonderful way to uh, experience the world and to be uh, experiencing art. Um, so none of those things that I just described really raise legal issues as long as the artist, of course, is involved. What does come up um, is what does the artist do about a business model? Uh, and oftentimes I help artists with monetization of their art, sale. Um, and sale historically for art, when you're talking about a museum, is that you sell the thing itself. So in this case, take away, so if the museum wanted to buy um, this immigration uh, uh, art and not just borrow it, they would buy the single copy and they would have the ability to show it to their um, their audience and visitors. And, uh, and that would be fine. They would do so for a while and then they'd put that 
machine or the headset back in a box and send it downstairs to their archives, um, bringing it back perhaps once again or something, but probably never again. And the reality is that the art will be residing on a piece of technology that's going to get old basically tomorrow. Uh, these headsets are getting better, the resolution is getting better, the experience is getting better. And so artists who are creating in virtual reality need to think about whether it makes sense to se sell the creation in one time, like as the original gets sold, or even make a limited edition. So make 10 experiences of somebody going across the border, sell it to 10 different people as though they're limited editions, one of 10, two of 10, six of 10. And then you have your 10 and that's it. Now that would be the traditional way that art is sold. You will either sell it as an original, you sell it as an, a limited edition, and the collector has his or her sole property. They own it and they keep it forever. Does that make sense in virtual reality? I would say not really. There is always that value of a scarcity model, but virtual reality is developing so rapidly. The technology is changing so much that it just doesn't make sense to fix it as, as I've described. It makes much more sense to view virtual reality more akin to like movies and television shows, art. And so think about it as the Fellini of today, where Fellini made movies on 35 millimeter film, that wouldn't be a really good way to see his films. They've been transposed onto newer media. They've been digitized. And you can still see art movies like um, Eight and a Half, um, but, or La Dolce Vita. But you can't, um, if you're, a, so that, th therefore the virtual reality artist should be thinking about creating their work as a work and don't worry about the medium. We don't worry about the fact that you've got headsets and, and license it, don't sell it. License it so that people can subscribe to your work. Put it on platforms where anybody can download to own, like you have a, a download to own on iTunes. Allow uh, the equivalent of Hulu to take your virtual reality work and make it available globally so that you don't have to worry about scarcity. You worry about getting your art out as far and wide as you possibly can through a, a licensing model. And you move away from the collector model. You move more to the consumer model. And, and that's really what I work on with um, my virtual reality artists and, and, um, and gallerists so that they can start to think about the work not quite as a limited edition, but as a, uh, an open edition, as it were. That business model that you're describing, it certainly opens the art up to a much broader audience than if you just sold, as you said, uh, either a unique or a very limited edition to institutions. I assume given the headset and the technology that it's museums that are predominantly, at this time, acquiring virtual reality art? Mostly it's been that. There's also been this um, live pop-up virtual reality experiences. So some places are creating virtual reality. They'll do a pop-up event in the middle of town someplace, and you can come and line up and buy tickets and experience it. That's been another way that it's been done, but largely what you're describing, yeah. Um, and it's, it's a work in progress because uh, that, that's a, only so many people can 
can see the work if you do it like that. But a, but a live event can can be profitable, and um, and it is one way to to show virtual reality work, especially right now when most people don't have headsets. There's another thing that that comes up, another legal issue. If if we have time, um, yeah, do we have time. Yeah, last one. Uh, yeah, let's talk about it. Okay, uh, one other legal issue that comes up in virtual reality, which I find fascinating, is um, <clears throat> the companies that create, call it computer-generated imagery or avatars. Uh, they're creating these these things that basically live inside the virtual space have um, this complicated relationship with those who purchase their work. So, for example, um, let's say Netflix is producing a virtual reality movie um, that has, has, everybody wears headsets and you're experiencing it, but they're hiring uh, companies to create avatars for them and create these moving images that are very sophisticated, com computer graphics, um, and let's say that the person who's watching the movie, and this is all future, but this is not very far in the future. The person watching the movie can create an avatar of him or herself, uh, which looks like him or herself in the movie, experiencing the, um, the entire drama as a participant. Um, an avatar is uh, really interesting because it has two functions. It's one, what's on the Skin. So the skin looks like, let's say it looks like, um, I don't know, Kim Kardashian. And um, the, however, underneath the skin, you've got all sorts of technology that's allowing the character to move and look uh, just like this. And there could be like the ability to move the mouth so that it sounds like or looks like she's talking and um, the ability to actually um, blink eyes and, and move arms. And so when a computer graphics engineer is, is creating that, you want to be able to obviously give the work to uh, Netflix to be able to create their movie. And then you've got the consumer who's created an avatar that looks like them. And then you've got the, the provider who's made the underlying software. So in this case, who owns the copyright and who owns the the right to exploit the image. Uh, really complicated uh, intellectual property question here, right? Because you've got three players. Um, the consumer gra con computer graphics party doesn't want to give up their software code, so they're going to reserve that. Um, Netflix doesn't want to give up the overall movie copyright just because somebody put their, their avatar in that looks like them. So they want to protect that. And then the consumer wants to protect them, their own image because they don't want somebody else to then exploit it just because they've put their image inside somebody else's movie. Um, and they may even want to use that same image elsewhere. Uh, so those are the sort of copyright and right of publicity questions that I deal with regularly and that are really interesting and they're going to become more and more important. Ed, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and speaking with us about artificial intelligence and virtual reality art and some of the major issues in those areas right now and some of the legal questions that um, you're either currently dealing with or will be dealing with in the future. Um, we really appreciate uh, your insights. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Really good to be here. Thanks, Adam.